guys are a lot of fun, by the way. You remind me of the uh, frick and frack, the, uh, the, the, the car guys. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's click and clack. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's a, I'll take that as a highest compliment. <laughs> I'll be frick. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hello. The internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Definitely today. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto here with my co host, Dr. Stuart Brigham. Hello. And Dr. Paul Williams. Hello. Hey, Paul. Uh, What's that? Paul, you want to retry that hello? <laughs> what were you reading? <laughs> I feel good about it. Were you that eating a right. frog? <laughs> like, hello. Uh, I, I just choked up to have Stuart back. <laughs> <laughs> I was okay. just having an emotional moment here. Just give me some time. I'll be all right. All right. <laughs> well, uh, this was an emotional episode. Uh, <laughs> good emotions. Yes. Uh, we were talking about dyslipidemia with our expert guest, Dr. Paul S. Gellinger, MD, Master of the American College of Endocrinology. And he is also the chair or co-chair of the recent ACE uh, Dyslipidemia Guidelines, which came out early in 2017 and had created some a, a bit of a stir by, by targeting very low LDL goals, which we will talk about. He is a professor of clinical medicine in the Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolism at the University of Miami. In May 2004, he was designated a Master of the American College of Endocrinology, a distinction that to date has been awarded to only 45 endocrinologists nationally. Dr. Gellinger is very active in ACE and has been involved in numerous publications related to diabetes, lipid disorders, and other endocrine topics. Most recently, he served as the chair of the writing committee for the recently published 2017 ACE Guidelines for the Management of Dyslipidemia and Prevention of Cardiovascular Disease, which is why we're having him on the show tonight. So thank you to ACE for setting this up. And without further ado, here's our conversation with Dr. Paul S. Gellinger. Hello, and welcome back to the Curbsiders. Hey, Matthew. Hi, Stuart. Hey. This is your host, Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co-host, Dr. Stuart Brigham. Hello. And Dr. Paul Williams. Hey, Matt. Oh, hi, Paul. And hey, Stuart. <laughs> and we have with us tonight Dr. Paul Gellinger, who was the one of the co-chairs of the recent ACE Lipid Guidelines. Hi, Dr. Gellinger. Hi, how are you? I'm doing very well, and we're so excited to have you on the show tonight to talk about this topic, which is as you know better than us, uh, very controversial, and the evidence is fast moving. So we are going to ask you all about that tonight. Good. Happy to answer. And the first, the first stuff we always like to do is ask people a little bit about themselves so our audience can get to know you. And uh, my favorite question is, if you had to describe yourself as a one-liner, much like we would do in the hospital, uh, what would be your one-liner about yourself? One liner or one word? <laughs> you could give us both. I'd prefer the whole line. <laughs> well, I like to look at myself as a, as a very I'm a very precise individual, you know, sort of a perfectionist uh, that really, basically, is always trying to do the right thing. And any hobbies or interests outside of medicine that can give us a little bit of peek into your personality? Well, I mean, I, I do play some tennis, but uh, in the last few years, I've been largely uh, limiting my uh, recreational activities to bicycle riding, uh, which I do with a few of my colleagues uh, on weekends. And it's, uh, it's a very nice, uh, very nice way to get some exercise and be out of doors for several hours. Well, that sounds great. So kind of like Tour de France, like you're, you're in a Peloton. Yeah. Not like your spin class, Matt. Yeah, the, the, the Tour de Florida. Uh, <laughs> that's probably even better. Well, Especially it's a lot now. easier. We don't have too many uh, mountains down here. Right. <laughs> and Dr. Gellinger, I, one of the questions that I've, I have found the most helpful is, what's the best advice that you have ever received as a learner? And the best advice I've ever received as a learner is probably uh, to stay focused and and just do the right thing it's that simple what about your best advice that you ever received uh, maybe from a mentor as an educator as an educator right make it interesting tell a story make it interesting and tell a story 
I like that. Or the, or the other way around. Tell a story and make it interesting. I like that one even better, actually. Huh, it brings it to a whole new light. So uh, I, enjoy teach, I, enjoy, I enjoy teaching a lot. And when I do teach, uh, just like you, individuals and residents and others, or other physicians, I really do try to tell a story and make it, and make it interesting and uh, uh, hopefully successful at it. I always like it when you see that aha moment. Their eyes kind of open. You're like, oh, well, they get it, finally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, I'm still waiting for that to happen, but it sounds fantastic. <laughs> That's okay, Paul. It's going to happen someday. I, I, I believe in you. Trust me, I do. So, uh, Dr. Jellinger, what is one thing that you can safely tell us on air about yourself that maybe we just might rem- remember till well, forever? About myself? Right. That we won't forget. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, that's sort of a tough one. But, um, uh, you know, when I get involved in a project such as these guidelines, which I chaired, uh, I become uh, really uh, immersed in it and very focused and uh, very enthusiastic about the projects that I have to do. So, So enthusiasm about things I believe in and projects I'm involved in is a hallmark of, of what people might say about me. I'm very enthusiastic. Sir, I think you quoted me that there were 682 citations for, for these guidelines. 695. 695. You were off, Matt. Sorry, I shortchanged you. Yes. So. You should feel very poorly about yourself right now. <laughs> I imagine uh-huh. you'd have to be fairly immersed to go through all 695 uh, sources there. You just dig well, them in. you know, it's true, but we also, this is a, a, a substantial update to the 2012 ACE guidelines. So, uh, you know, a, a good portion of these citations were already in the 2012, but we added quite a number, no question. Yeah. I get like a, a, a little kick or a high when I start looking through the uh, primary literature. It's, uh, it's kind of a... Uh, you feel like you're like, learning things that other people don't know? Yeah. Like, oh, no one, no one ever read this study. You're like, there's no chance anyone else read this besides like me and the person that wrote it. And he's probably happy I read it. <laughs> This is an absolute side note, but one of my favorite papers cites – it talks about how tomatoes don't taste as good as they used to and actually has a citation for that. And it's just my favorite citation in all of literature, I think. Why don't you say what your, uh, your pick of the, of the year was for your, your article? Remember that one? My article of the year? Yeah. Oh, it was one of those fake British medical journal ones. I think it was about uh, – it was about – Asparagus. So it was about like something like 40% of people who eat asparagus don't get that uh, pea smell that, that uh, the others do get. And and that was my pick of that was my article of the year. Yeah, that shows where Matt's at. Yeah, yeah but 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 everybody everybody knew that before the articles. <laughs> yeah. So a hundred percent knew that. <laughs> well, I, no, but see, because I get the smell, so I thought everyone else did too. Oh, I didn't. I didn't is, realize this is this, this might is, be an overshare. This we is can take this out in post, right? <laughs> or we can just keep it in just for Matt. It's a little too much information. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, sir, uh, to to completely uh, shift gears here. Uh, if uh, a favorite starting question is, if you had to explain dyslipidemia for a Wikipedia article, how would you explain that in just like a short paragraph or a couple of sentences? Uh, so it's abnormal blood levels of lipids is the precise uh, definition or the general definition for dyslipidemia. Um, it is generally, um, in, in, let's, let's put this in many individuals, refer to dyslipidemia as a particular uh, association of high triglycerides, low HDL cholesterol, and a mildly elevated LDL cholesterol that we see so often in diabetes, and that's known as diabetic dyslipidemia. So some people have a very narrow definition when they've got to see that sort of arrangement. But in, in, in general, dyslipidemia is any abnormal levels of circulating lipids, including hypercholesterolemia and hypertriglyceridemia. It's all dyslipidemia. So the definition is just, just what I've said, and I think that's the best way to look at it. So I just, I just wanted to point something out that that's actually more words in the Wikipedia article. The Wikipedia <laughs> article has like nothing in there. <laughs> uh, thank you for looking up the you're, actual you're Wikipedia I was article. curious for once about yeah. that. Or, but I'm, I'm sure it's heck going to look it up when we get done. <laughs> So that's it. I mean, it's a we we use it as a in a broad sense right. to, to categorize abnormal lipid values in the blood. And and sir, 
when I'm coding, and I often think about this, when I'm approaching patients with lipids, I'm usually only thinking I'm usually only thinking of statins, and I'm just I'm not really like ah, it doesn't matter if I write hypertriglyceridemia or um, fam- familial or pure hypercholesterolemia. <laughs> they had all those. Codes I usually just in put there. hyperlipidemia, comma unspecified. Yes, me too. That's <laughs> yes. So, but sir, what I'm asking is, do you recommend other? I know that if someone is homozygous for familial hypercholesterolemia, it's usually fairly obvious. <laughs> but how important do you think it is for us as primary care docs when we're when we're treating somebody for lipids to actually think about is this more hypertriglyceridemia or is this more uh, familial heterozygous or does it matter to characterize it and name it? Oh, I think so. I think it matters a great deal because the highest risks of heart disease are associated with familial hypercholesterolemia. Uh, certainly the homozygous form is extraordinarily high rate and the heterozygous form is, is, is considerably increased as well. And those are very important categorizations to understand. While patients with hypertriglyceridemia and the usual uh, association of low HDL cholesterol along with hypertriglyceridemia, they, they usually are, rep, uh, are representing or reflect insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome or, or diabetes, which of course the underpinning of diabetes is in insulin resistance and, and metabolic syndrome as well. Those patients with high triglycerides and low HDL, moderately elevated LDL, uh, are also at increased risk for heart disease, but not in the same category as patients with familial hypercholesterolemia, um, uh, either heterozygous or homozygous. Those are the highest of all. So uh, I do think you need to think about is the basic defect uh, elevated uh, serum cholesterol, which means elevated LDL and actually means elevated uh, increased numbers of ApoB particles, uh, elevated LDL, or is the basic defect um, insulin resistance or uh, metabolic syndrome, as it sometimes often is called, where it's elevated triglycerides and low HDL. Now, many patients have both. When you see patients whose LDL is elevated and cholesterol is elevated and their triglycerides are high and their HDL is generally low, that's the categorization that you probably uh, are familiar with of mixed hyperlipidemia. You've probably seen that on your ICD-10 sheets as well. Um, mi- mixed hyperlipidemia is elevated triglycerides and elevated cholesterol. And those patients have very high rates of, of uh, vascular disease, coronary artery disease as well. So to me, when I see a patient with high, tri- patient with high triglycerides, often in low HDL, I'm thinking of, is, it, is this patient, does this patient have pre-diabetes? Does this patient have undiagnosed diabetes? Or does the patient have insulin resistance uh, without even pre-diabetes? Because it's such a common association uh, with insulin resistance that it makes me start looking closely at uh, looking at blood sugars and A1Cs to make certain that uh, we're not dealing with an uh, undiagnosed case of pre-diabetes or diabetes when triglycerides are high and HDL is low. That also happens in obesity, of course, but that also may represent pre-diabetes or diabetes. And and with the familial, the, the heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia, how do you identify that? Because I feel like I might be missing that, or I, I'm not sure that I'm I'm doing that correctly. You you absolutely are missing it, but so is everybody else. Mm. <laughs> Good job, Matt. Well, the heterozygous form actually occurs in one in 250 patients. Can you believe that? Yeah. It's wow. really common, the heterozygous. The homozygous, it depends on who you, what you're looking at and, and what studies, but that's, you know, one in 250,000 or maybe one in 200,000. It's much less common. So what you may, and those are recognized, the homozygous are recognized by cholesterols of seven and 800 and, and coronary disease in, the, in, the, in their 20s. Um, you know when those patients come along because they have LDLs of 300 and, and cholesterols of 7 or 800, uh, or maybe not that high, but, but pretty high. The heterozygous is the, real, is the real challenge because they are out there. We all have them in our practice. I'm sure I've missed a whole bunch of them. And you can identify a heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemic patient by doing genetic analysis, uh, sending it out to a lab, um, and that costs about $1,500, and no insurance company pays for it. So that's ra- rarely done. But there are um, uh, three clinical diagnostic tools that uh, make a presumptive diagnosis of heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia. 
One is known as the Simon Broom Registered Diagnostic Criteria. The other is the Dutch Lipid Clinic Network Diagnostic Criteria. And the other is the U.S. MedPed Criteria. Basically, I, I think mostly of the Simon Broom. It's the easiest. Patients whose LDL is greater than 190, untreated, whose native LDL is greater than 190, is uh, uh, presumptive to have uh, heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia. And it's a challenge because so many patients are on statins today, it's hard to prove that an untreated LDL was greater than 190 at one time because those records you know, may go back 10 years or 15 mm-hmm. years and they're not available. Uh, so unfortunately, the insurance companies will uh, have presented huge obstacles in getting the uh, PCSK9 inhibitors approved. About 80% of the prescriptions are denied, by the way. It's really terrible. And one of the reasons we have, we have trouble is because we can't always convince the insurance companies by way of the Simon Broom or any other uh, diagnostic criteria that they, they meet those criteria because we can't always show a, an old LDL greater than 190. Which is funny because it's kind of an okay problem to have. It, it means you've actually successfully kind of treated a patient. <laughs> That's true. That's true, Paul. Say that again? I said it's kind of a good problem to have because it means you at least kind of treated a patient a little bit to get at least their LDL less than right. immediate heart attack range. But, but obviously, when you have familial uh, hypercholesterolemia, bringing it down to 160 or 140, it's just not enough. I mean, these patients are at very high risk. So th- yeah. they don't respond as well to statins. Is that correct or not? Uh, they don't respond as well to statins, exactly. And even on maximum statin therapy, they're, they're not at LDL goal. Right. And the, the, famil- the, the, the homozygous respond very, very poorly to statins. They mm. don't have any receptors. Exactly. Be- because the, the uh, mutation's in the LDL receptor, correct? Right. Yeah. So there are several mutations. That's one of the mutations. But when you don't have receptors, you can't, your, your ability to increase receptors, either by statins or by PCSK9 inhibitors, is greatly limited. Right. Despite that, when you apply a PCSK9 inhibitor to uh, anastatin together in someone with homozygous familial hypercholesterolemia, you actually get a, a pretty decent drop in the LDL. You're able to crank up some of those receptors. But that's, I mean, the real issue is not the homozygous. The real issue is the heterozygous, and, and there's a ton of them out there. Patients who've got strong family histories of heart disease and had an LDL of uh, greater than 190 at one time, but, you know, getting that uh, getting that across to the insurance companies has been nothing uh, short of a, a mini nightmare for all of us. It's really quite terrible. So w- w- one of the, the, the pleasures that I have in the position that, I, that I'm currently in is I get to review some of the consults that come to our clinic and, uh, and kind of get to cherry pick them. So I, I, I recently saw a patient, this was, I, I say recently, within the past like five to ten years, so it's been some time. Um, this is a patient who uh, had a very strong family history. He was in his mid to late 40s at time, his LDL was 160 to 180. He was a marathon runner, very healthy. His, everyone in his family was very healthy. They were all marathon runners. His father hadn't had a STEMI at the age of around 48, 49, give or take. Start him on, on high dosage Crestor, um, his PCM did, and his LDL went from about one, 170, 180 to around 130. And th- this was not an appropriate reduction, but he didn't really meet the appropriate criteria for a heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia. Um, having said that, when I checked an ApoB100 on this guy and an LP uh, little a, they were just it, extraordinarily elevated. Is there any? Is there any time that that if there's a questionable diagnosis and, and you don't you, your insurance provider isn't going to cover the uh, a DNA probe? Is there is there any evidence to suggest checking an, uh, an ApoB100 or an LP little a? Well, those are very useful things to do, although you, you sort of don't need it because the, the family history and, and the fact that his LDL is still 160, I think you said. It, yeah. you know, that's, that's, that's scary enough right there. Right. Um, and I'm not, I'm not so sure you would do anything different uh, if you knew the LPA was high. Uh, or the, and I can tell you the ApoB is going to be very high. Yeah. The LDL is high. The ApoB was not necessary in that case, but the, uh, and I can talk more about ApoB okay. if you'd like in a moment. But the uh, LP little a is something that is transmitted within families who have family history of, of heart disease. Um, one, one could, there's a couple of things about, April, uh, about LP little a. Uh, there's only two things that lower it. 
Uh, one is niacin, which has fallen out of favor, which I think you are aware of. Yeah. But niacin does lower LP, LP little a, and so do the PCSK9 inhibitors lower uh, LP little a. But you're never going to convince an insurance company to give someone a PCSK9 to, uh, to, to lower uh, LP little a. They probably don't even know what you're talking about. Right. Uh, <laughs> but I, um, I can tell you that, um, that that patient is very worrisome. You know, that patient's, you know what that patient sounds like? Do, do you remember... The, the runner about 30 years ago, the guy that invented jogging by the name of Jim Fix. Do you remember that name? I, I, will, have to, XX. I will have to actually right. admit I don't. You, you guys are too young. <laughs> you guys are too young. Well, he started running recreationally, and he, and he really formed the whole recreational activity of jogging. But he called it running in those times, not in those days, not jogging. And he dropped dead at 55 while he was jogging. And, but he put jogging on the map. And he had a terrible, terrible family history of heart disease, and, and he was trying to be healthy, and he, and he drops, uh, drops dead, unfortunately. It's of some interest because Winston Churchill, who was, had every bad habit in the world, was overweight, drank, smoked, um, died around the same time at age 95. So it showed, um, it showed you how much genetics is involved here. Uh, but um, that, 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 that individual is, 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 is really very... Uh, makes me very nervous. So you have this patient on, on the highest dose statin that he can tolerate or Yes. And and he's on and he's on niaspan two thousand milligrams. Um well, that's a good thing. Right. The LP little a. I would probably add azetamide to that uh, to that individual. Uh, it's now generic uh Zetia, right. uh, and uh, and try to lower the LDL more but um if you can't get anywhere with it um you know keep trying to prove uh to the um, well you know the, the other thing is to do a coronary artery calcium score, which is very helpful. We can talk about that, too. And if it's very high, you might go to the insurer and say, look, this patient has extreme subclinical cardiovascular disease. He's got a bad family history. His best LDL, let's say, is 160. Uh, and he's got an 800 coronary artery calcium score. That's an extreme subclinical cardiovascular disease. Um, you know, we need to get a PCSK9 for this individual because he's going to go the the way of his family members. It probably won't be successful, but having a very high calcium score has swayed some insurance carriers. Yeah. So um, uh, you might want to do that. But that's a challenge, that case, no question. I do think that patient has familial hypercholesterolemia. Right. And I, uh, heterozygous, and if you check it enough times untreated, you'll probably get at least one over 190 uh, LDL. But uh, Dr. Gellinger, I, I wanted to jump in here and because I'm not, I'm not really familiar with using the LP little a or the APOB or the LDL particle concentration. It's not something I'm doing in my practice right now. And I'm wondering how practical is that for widespread use? Our, our, our listeners right. are primary care managers, many of them practicing in kind of austere environments, meaning like inner cities. Uh, are, are these things wide, widely used or can we just go by the clinical data, some of the stuff that Stuart was talking about? Right. I, they're not widely used, but there is an appropriate use for, uh, for a, uh, an, uh, APOB and, and maybe a little less so for the, for the, uh, LP little a, but that can be quite useful. Let me just try to go through this quickly. Um, LP little a, as I mentioned a moment ago, is, is strongly transmitted within families. So if you have someone who gives you a very strong family history of especially premature coronary disease, but even not so premature, but it's very strong. Um, it's uh, often useful to, uh, to uh, measure an LP little a to see if that individual in front of you has acquired that same risk. It's not 100%. If, they ha- if their LP little a is not elevated, you, you can't say they're not at risk. But if their LP little a is elevated, you, you, you certainly uh, can say they're at in- a greatly increased risk. So uh, rather than treating every single patient who has a very bad family history, with uh, statins and other agents to bring their LDL way down, you could select out those who have uh, inherited that uh, uh, that factor uh, because uh, it does run very uh, true uh, within families. And you'll see it all the time. Someone tells you their father died at 50 from a heart attack and, and, and mother at 62 or 48. Uh, you, you have a good chance that LP little a is very high. Now, what you do with that LP little a that's high, you could use niacin as you did on your patient, but that's a tough drug to tolerate in many cases. Um, the strategy for treating an elevated LP little a, if you don't get them on a PCSK9 inhibitor, which does lower LP little a, 
is to um, lower LDL uh, very aggressively because when you lower LDL very aggressively, the LP little a risk is greatly diminished. So you just get aggressive with your statins. So with ApoB, it's a little different. And the reason I said to you before, I'm not sure your patient needs an ApoB is because his LDL was so high. So what is ApoB? It's a protein that's attached. One ApoB molecule is attached to every LDL particle. So it gives you an assessment of particle number, LDL particle number, because every LDL particle has an ApoB attached to it. You measure the number of the, your ApoB and you know how many particles you have in a sense. Now, when your LDL is 150 or 160, you're going to have a ton of ApoB. Mm-hmm. It's not important to know that. You want a lower LDL way, way below that. No question. But when you think you're at target, when you think you're at your LDL is at 70, or as we need to talk about in a moment, the new risk category that we created that has caused so much excitement in these guidelines, the extreme risk category with an LDL less than 55, when you think you're at your LDL less than 55, or you think you're at your LDL of less than 70 as a target, and we believe in targets, you know, as opposed to the ACC AHA guidelines, well, the way to use an ApoB in my mind is when you believe you have achieved the target for that patient is confirm that with an ApoB because it's much harder to lower ApoB than it is LDL. So if you lower your LDL to 65 and it's below 70, you say, wow, I've done a great job, but your ApoB is still above 80, which would be the, re- it would be the recommendation would be less than 80 in that patient, mm-hmm. then you need to lower the LDL even further to get the ApoB below 80. And the ApoB goal for um, uh, the extreme risk category of less than 55 is 70. So uh, once you, you believe you've, you've achieved your LDL goal, it's a good idea to, um, uh, it's useful to confirm that you have not only reduced the total LDL, but you reduced the number of LDL particles. Uh, you have a total amount of LDL, let's say it's 100. If your APOB is high, uh, let's say, 95 or 110, that means you have a lot of particles in that LDL of 100 because your ApoB measures the particle number and you have 110 ApoB in an LDL, uh, total LDL of 100. So what does that mean? That means that the particles are very small and dense. You know all about that, right? The small, dense LDL. So if you have a high ApoB, the particles are small and they're very atherogenic. The small, dense LDL particles are much more atherogenic. When your ApoB is low in a certain amount of LDL cholesterol, that means the particles are few, and they're larger particles because there's one ApoB for every particle, and there are fewer ApoB particles in a given amount of LDL. I don't know if I'm making myself clear. Am I making myself reasonably clear? I think you are, and I'll have to because I'll, I'll tell you, I knew none of this. I, I, I <laughs> it's okay, Matt. I, I do, I well, do neither, of neither. the concept. Like I knew of the concept because Stuart, I work with Stuart, and he he talks about it. But I, I it was not clear. Right. And I thought that was a clear explanation. Which, thank you. <laughs> yeah, that was great. Actually, Matt, if I may, for me, just because I'm a simpleton, can we? Well, I just wanted to, to finish up. It refines your LDL measurement, and once you have uh, reached an LDL goal. Next question is, have I reached my ApoB goal, which is another way of saying, have I reduced particle numbers satisfactory, not just total LDL? So uh, I'm sorry, you're going to say something? Uh, well, I was calling myself a simpleton, and then I'm going to roll back. So before we, like we, we sort of we jumped right into treatment uh, um, and treatment goals, before we even get there, uh, just with the guidelines, I think if you wouldn't mind just talking us through what the recommenda- recommendations are just for screening and exactly what labs to order even for screening, because they actually differ pretty significantly from at least when to start screening, I think, from like USPSTF recommendations or maybe even the ACC guidelines, and then what labs you recommend and whether or not they should be fasting. Yeah, well, okay, so there's a, there's a couple of uh, good questions. They're all good questions, don't get me wrong. I mean, the, 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 the lipid profile, I believe, and the, and the committee felt preferably as fasting, but some studies in the last few years have shown that there really isn't too much of a difference in a non-fasting measurement. Uh, it is maybe 5% on the LDL. The trouble with that is that's really valid when someone doesn't have uh, hypertriglyceridemia. And if someone has hypertriglyceridemia, the non-fasting level, I think, is, is not terribly accurate because the triglycerides after reading can be three or 400, and that's going to lower your HDL and it's going to mess up your LDL. And 
so and and I treat so many patients with diabetes and insulin resistance and all the things I spoke about before with triglycerides are elevated that I do ask them to come in fasting if at all possible. If I know a patient has straight hypercholesterolemia without a triglyceride factor involved, I, I say, if you, if you can't come in fasting, come in any time. Don't worry about it. So fasting is preferred but not absolutely viable, vital in many patients. There's nothing magic about what we're recommending. We're recommending total cholesterol, LDL, HDL, triglycerides, and a calculation of non-HDL is what you should do origi- uh, initially, and I believe fasting if, if, uh, if possible, especially if hypertriglyceridemia is known in that individual. There's nothing magical about what we're recommending, and we're not recommending particle number, particle size, or even ABOB as a routine in, in every single uh, individual. Uh, and that's basically, that holds up well, those kind of, you don't even, frankly, everything is so LDL centric that you don't even need a total cholesterol. <laughs> uh, but, but patients are very tuned into what the total cholesterol is. We always like to tell them, but really our, right. our targets revolve around LDL, not total cholesterol, as you know. Gotcha. And the recommendation is to start screening at age 20. Is that right? It's a little bit individual, but I, I think Age 20 is, uh, is a strong recommendation uh, for most individuals. I think every adult should know their, uh, their, their, their lipid profile. And children um, who are at risk, uh, family history or heart disease, should be screened much earlier, in, in, below, before age 10, uh, 10 even, if they have a strong family history. No question about it. To get back to part of Paul's initial question there, I, I noticed when I was going through the guidelines, your the risk scores you're recommending. So we check our labs, and the risk scores that you're using are still it's Framingham, you wrote Reynolds, UKPDS, right. and then the MESA score, which I believe that's the one that involves the coronary artery artery calcium scoring. Did you purposely leave out? Did you purposely leave out the ACC AHA, which a lot of I think many patient many people are using those right now. The answer to the question that we purposely leave out, we just we just don't, and this question has come up before. We just don't think that 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 risk tool is something that we can um, we can recommend. Um, it's it's uh, never been really proven. It's a lot of conjecture. It uh, in some it's been criticized a lot for uh, uh, overstating the need for medication in the in the elderly. Too many older people are going to be put on statins because age is such a driving factor there. That's been the criticism, but my criticism and, and many endocrinologists is that it underestimates the risk of patients that have metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, and family history of heart disease. Nowhere in the algorithm, nowhere in the score is family history of heart disease. You know how important that is? Mm-hmm. Um, so if you, if you have a patient who's got a strong family history of premature heart disease and has a, a hypertriglyceridemia, low HDL, uh, but doesn't have a high LDL, uh, et cetera, et cetera, uh, but has hypertension, which they may, they will come out to uh, a, a, a risk below the 7% category for treatment. They will come out, uh, they will come out as a non-treatable uh, individual because they'll, they'll calculate out to less than 7% risk because they're not uh, incorporating family history and insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome into the equation. And as endocrinologists, we know that that increases risk very significantly. And they know it too, because when you take that same patient who's got uh, hypertension, high triglycerides, low HDL, and a bad fam- very bad family history, and you calculate them with the ACCEHA, then they, they shouldn't be treated. They're below 7%. But they also calculate a lifetime risk. And the lifetime risk for that patient is 50%. <laughs> right. So the 10-year the risk is below treatment, but the lifetime is 50%. So does that make any sense? You're not treating someone for 10 years when they have a 50% lifetime risk. Right. There's just a lot of things that we didn't like about it. Of course, the main thing we don't like about those guidelines is there's no targets and goals. Right. And we as endocrinologists you know, have never abandoned our targets and goals. In fact, we enhance them on this guidelines to create a new extreme risk category with an LDL target of less than 55. You know, we have four algorithms. 
uh, out here. And the Mesa is the one that, of course, is really coming into its uh, own right now as a very valid tool. And uh, we're letting the reader uh, choose which algorithm they want to use. And I think most uh, are risk score, not algorithm, risk score. Um, and today, I think more and more of us are, are using the, the Mesa uh, risk scoring, uh, using coronary artery calcium. It's quite, quite useful. And, and one comment I just wanted to make about the ACC AHA, uh, because I'm in teaching clinic all the time, the residents are always asking me, well, if I'm following the ACC AHA, once I put them on treatment, do I have to recheck the lipids? And then, and then they're, they're really just taught to recheck them because, not by me, but they're taught to recheck them just to make sure the patient's taking the statin. But I really feel like they, they, if you look into those guidelines, they say they think high intensity is going to lower LDL by 50%. So you do, I think you do have to pay attention. I, I tell the residents, you do have to pay attention. If you, if you are going to follow those guidelines, at least make sure you're getting the 50% lowering of the LDL. But I think now we're going to be talking about the, the, the PCSK9 trials and uh, Fourier or Fourier, however you pronounce it, where they showed Fourier, that yeah. these extreme lowerings of LDL were actually important. Well, it, it was, uh, you're absolutely right. And, and I think that in all fairness to your residents, I mean, it's important that they know about the ACCHA guidelines. In many ways, it's an outstanding document, but they they really they focused uh, they focused away from targets and goals so in such a striking manner that many physicians have had a problem with that from day one. I mean, we have goals for hypertension, we have goals for you know, A1C and blood sugar. I mean, why shouldn't we have goals for right. LDL? It, mo- it motivates physicians and it motivates patients to have a, a goal. And, and it's, very, it's very important. I was going to say, I think the experience that a lot of our patients have had is, or, or a lot of our providers have had is, the patients, they say, well, what's my LDL? When are we going to check it again? I want to know what my cholesterol is. So they, they want to know the numbers. Right. And, and we actually talked to Dr. Jones from the National Lipid Association. Uh, he's at Baylor. Yep. And he actually, he said the same thing. They, they have LDL goals and targets. Uh, they weren't, this was a, a while back. We talked to them. They, they weren't as strict. I think they had less than 70 was their cutoff. But they did talk about lowering LDL because you, you want to make sure that you're getting that lowering because that's where they believe that the this this uh, mortality reduction and the cardiovascular risk reduction comes from. Listen, if if, if you ask even some of the writers of the ACCAHA guidelines what they really do in their practices, I'm telling you they they're still following goals. It's such a strong, um, it's so valid. It's been validated in so many studies to put someone on a statin and a high dose statin and just say, uh, come back in six months so I can make sure you're taking the medicine or whatever it is. It's just, it's, it flies in the, it flies in the face of so much data that says the lower is better. LD, the lower the LDL is better. And then, and the data keeps accumulating and the data, uh, the Fourier study completely validated our guidelines, the ACE guidelines. But let me tell you how we uh, derive the LDL, uh, a target of less than 55 for certain high-risk patients. It comes from the Improve It study, uh, mm-hmm. which was the study with simvastatin that some patients were uh, were placed on azetamide, zetia, and the other half, the other group was not, and they were followed. Uh, and indeed, the addition of azetamide or zetia to simvastatin uh, brought the LDL down to 53. Um, and uh, resulted in a significant reduction in uh, atherosclerotic events uh, compared to the group that was just on the statin, whose LDL, I think, was 69 or 70 or some number like that. Uh, on the statin, the, the accepted target, less than 70 at that time, was where the simvastatin group was on, but the simvastatin uh, zetamide group had an LDL of 53, and they did significantly better. Uh, that was a very important study, and that got us uh, very uh, strongly thinking about we need to create a category uh, that, that reflects what lowering the LDL to, to 53 um, means because it was so powerful. Plus, in the uh, Improve It study, the uh, greatest benefit uh, was seen in patients with diabetes uh, of, of any patient group. So that was uh, near and dear to our hearts uh, as endocrinologists. 
But the Improve It study was just a prospective trial that proved what we knew anyway, because for years, all the prospective trials using the various statins um, that, that were out there for, for so many years, Jupiter and all the studies that are out there, uh, always showed that the, those patients in those trials that did the best were the ones that had the lowest LDL, the ones in the 50s and 40s and 55, because you can occasionally get down that low with statins too. Uh, and they always did the best. Every one of those big trials showed the lower the LDL within that trial, the better the result within that trial. So there was a lot of, of observational evidence uh, and, and perspective evidence as well that the lower was the better. There's also a trial called the cholesterol trialist trial. The 2010 cholesterol trialist trial uh, looked at 170,000 patients, I believe, um, and showed that it didn't matter. It didn't matter what your cholesterol was. Uh, you lowered your risk significantly by lowering your LDL even further. Even when you started off less than 70, you kept improving by lowering the LDL. You, you, now, that's a meta-analysis. Uh, the cholesterol tri treatment trialist study of 179,000 patients, 170,000 patients, but that's a huge number. And it holds true in everything you look at, that the, the, the lower you go, the better you do. And even in the lower brackets, when you lower it further, you do better. Even if your LDL is... 60 or 70, but if you lower it further, you do better. And and I wanted to break in here. And and what what hasn't sure. made what has not made sense to me about this is if if lower is better and statins, if you put someone on a high intensity statin and their LDL drops to 80s or the 90s, what are what are we supposed to do from there? Why are we not using these fairly cheap and overall? relatively safe things like fibrates or niacin. I know there's some problems with patients tolerating them, but if patients can tolerate them, I know there's been things about, you know, add-on therapy with non-statin medications is no longer routinely recommended. But if we are supposed to lower LDL by all means necessary and PCSK9 right. cost $1,000 or more a month uh, without coupons or special offers, then, then how are we supposed to do this? Well, that's an extremely good question, and of course, but let's just uh, clear the air on the fibrates because that comes up a lot. Fibrates are mainly a, tri a triglyceride-lowering class of drugs. It lowers LDL slightly, but it's really designed to lower triglycerides and as a result of that, uh, raise HDL as well. And in many patients, but not all, the uh, LDL will come down as well. But they're not powerful LDL-lowering drugs. The uh, the LDL-lowering drug add-on to statins that is worth considering is the one that was used in the Improver trial, azetamide, because that is an LDL-lowering drug. And added to statins, that not only lowers the LDL another 18%, maybe more than that, sometimes more, but also in the Improver trial, it reduced the number of cardiovascular events. So it has outcome data. But getting back to your question about fibrates, because this comes up a lot, is the ACCHA sort of Frowned on, frowned on that somewhat uh, using combination therapy. Well, they've backed off on that with a, a major paper that sort of said, yeah, you can do that. But let's clear the air on, on, on fibrates. Now, fibrates have a mixed history. For the average patient whose triglycerides are 160, 170, 180, using a fibrate doesn't appear to make any difference in, in all the important trials in terms of outcomes. And you can lower your triglycerides further than that by using fibrates, but it doesn't make a difference in the outcomes. So we don't like to use fibrates in patients whose triglycerides are, say, less than 200. But what five studies have shown is that when triglycerides are over 200, and especially if the HDL is low at the same time, adding a fibrate to statin therapy does move the needle towards reducing cardiovascular events. Statins lower triglycerides too, not, not particularly robustly, but they do. And you first use statins, they're always first, unless the triglycerides are very high. And there you're trying to prevent pancreatitis. I think you know that. If, you're, if you're, you use your statins first, but after your, your, your statin therapy is, uh, is maximized, your triglycerides remain over 200, 
there is good evidence from about five trials that there will be an added cardiovascular benefit by adding statins to those patients over 200. I'm sorry, you mean adding fibrates to the statin in that case? When the triglycerides are over 200, but not if, if, if below that. And you're on pretty strong ground with that. There are several studies that have shown that. So I think that's the role for fibrate. And that patient, sir, I, I just just for the audience, uh, I I think I'm probably having the same experience as other people because I'm in an internal medicine clinic with a lot of comorbidities, and I do see a fair amount of patients with, they get the LDL lowering on a statin, but their triglycerides are in the 200s or 300s, right. and I'm not really sure what to do with those people. So you have, you have two choices there. Uh, there's where I would add a fibrate or I would add fish oil. The trouble with fish oil is it has not yet been proven to have a cardiovascular benefit, although there's some suggestion that it does. If you're one reason or another don't want to use a fibrate, maybe renal disease or whatever, I would add fish oil, uh, either the, but the, the prescription uh, pharmaceutical grade fish, oil, not the over-the-counter stuff. And one thing I just wanted to add for the audience, because we, we had talked about the, the triglyceride thing a little bit on a prior episode, and you said two grams twice a day, which is the pharmaceutical grade dosing. If, if your patient's getting it over the counter, those usually have less than a thousand milligrams, maybe like 400 or 500 per capsule. Oh yeah. They're going to need, they're going to need eight or 10 of those capsules. Right. So that's an important thing. I don't, I don't want people to think that their patients buying over the counter fish oil are going to be getting the lowering that they need. They need to make sure they're getting that four grams. Right. They just, they can do it by taking a huge number of capsules. Uh, and, and, you know, there may be some GI issues with that, et cetera. And sir, to, to give you a, a case that, that kind of touches in this area, uh, seeing patients on the inpatient side, once in a while, we'll get someone coming in with triglycerides greater than a thousand. And in those, and it may, may or may not have pancreatitis, but in those patients, would you recommend a fibrate as first line therapy? Or a lot of these patients will qualify for a statin just by their their risk. So I'm usually I'm usually starting both. Yeah, you could start both, or I would just start the uh, the, the fibrate. Uh, first of all, if someone's in the hospital. Uh, they're not in the hospital for you said for pancreatitis, just the triglycerides or that. I just just making them NPO will lower those triglycerides <laughs> very quickly, uh, and and if they and if they are uh, have diabetes, uh, you know, uh, insulin will will do the same. Uh, but I I would one thousand is a high level, and if it's fasting, it's particularly high because after that meal, that one thousand becomes sixteen hundred or eighteen hundred, and that's easily in the pancreatitis range. Even a thousand is in the pancreatitis range. So yeah, I would I would add a fibrate right right away on that patient. It depends a little bit on what the LDL is and what their history is. Whether I would also use a statin at the same time, but I probably would. I probably would because no doubt their LDL is going to be elevated with the triglycerides that high. But my focus would be on um, reducing the dietary fat very abruptly and to use using a fibrate and and those. Triglycerides should come down within a day or two. They really should. Um, and send that patient home on fibrates. And maybe fish oil as well. Combination of fibrates and fish oil is also useful. Can you talk a little bit about how often, when you put someone on therapy, how often are you recommending that we follow up their lipids until they become stable or until they reach their goal? Well, I can tell you what I do. I don't think anybody has the, uh, the absolute best answer for this. If I start someone on a statin, I'm going to reevaluate, or any therapy, I'm going to reevaluate the uh, efficacy of that drug and for any possible adverse side effects in about six weeks. And then I will enhance my drug therapy or, or change it if there's any type of adverse reaction. Uh, and uh, I will then check it probably three months after that. And if everything look good, looks good, probably twice a year. But mainly to make certain I've gotten to my goal. I'm not too worried about adverse effects. Uh, statins don't really affect liver very much. And, you know, you don't have to follow their, uh, their liver function tests anymore. Just make sure they're normal when you start the statins. And uh, you want to you want to make certain, uh, and the CPK is not something that you really should be following. If a patient has myalgias, then you can check the CPK, but you don't you don't follow that routinely. Uh, those has changed from when the statins were first introduced. We were looking at CPKs 
on liver tests very frequently, but that's not the case anymore. So that's sort of the way I do it. That's probably a little bit more frequent than a lot of people, but it's a big mistake to start someone on a, any form of drug therapy and say, come back in six months. That's a big mistake. Since you kind of delved into this in your, in your comment right there, how do you counsel patients about statin myopathy? Because you, when you, when you talk to a patient about statins, they almost always ask, what, what's your spiel? How do you get people to take their statin? Well, when I'm starting them on a statin, they'll always ask me, as they ask you, what are, what are the side effects? I say, well, you know, these are really well-tolerated drugs, but there are some people, maybe 10 or 15%, that get muscle aching with statins. So if you experience any unexplained muscle aching different than what you are accustomed to, because everybody has aches and pains. So you don't want someone who suddenly gets a backache or a, or a leg cramp that always had that periodically, but is now taking a statin to blame it on the statin and stop it. And, and patients do that all the time. So I make it clear, if you have any unexplained muscle aching that uh, is unexplained, not due to a, a strain or whatever, see if it persists for several days. And if it does, you, you need to stop your statin and come in and let's, let's, let's take a look at you. Uh, and then what I do is I stop the drug. I wait until the uh, myalgia has disappeared, which is a week or two or three usually, and then I restart it again because I'm still not convinced that it wasn't a coincidence. If it reappears with the second go-around and it sounds very similar, then I'll accept the fact that they're somewhat intolerant to that drug. I will try a different statin, and I will try at least three statins or even four before I give up on statins. Uh, the... Um, and often enough, you can find a statin that does this um, to a much lesser degree or not at all. Uh, if, you if you stick with it or sometimes one of the tricks we have is giving it every other day. But that's really suitable for the longer acting statins like uh, Resuvastatin and uh, Atorvastatin. Uh, the brand names used, uh, used to be Crestor and Lipitor. Uh, they have longer uh, duration of action, so you can get away with a good a good benefit by giving it every other day, and that can um, can make a difference with the uh, with the myalgia. I, I wanted to break in with a favorite follow up question that patients have. My friend told me that if I take CoQ10 with my statin, I won't have myopathy. How do you respond to that one? Uh, I tell them there's no good evidence that CoQ10 makes a difference, but occasionally a patient is very convinced it has, so why don't we try it? I mean, I'm, I, I will tell you that often enough I'll tell patients to try it for a couple of months and see if it makes a difference. The trick there, as I was told by a pharmacist patient of mine who's looked into this in, in, in detail, is that we're not giving enough. You need to give at least 400 milligrams of CoQ10 to get any kind of benefit. But I do use it uh, at 400 milligrams occasionally, and I can't say as though I haven't had patients respond. Some have. Most don't notice any difference, though, I'll be perfectly honest. It's a very difficult area, statin intolerance. That's why the PCSK9s are so beautiful, the PCSK9 inhibitors. There's no my, 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 there are no myalgias associated with it. It works by a different mechanism, and they lower LDL much more robustly than statins do. And one of the indications for PCSK9 inhibition is in patients who are, who are unable to reach LDL goal with maximally tolerated status. You can't say, I want a PCSK9 inhibitor because my patient is statin intolerant. That's not an FDA-approved indication. The FDA-approved indication is unable to reach LDL goal with maximum tolerated statin therapy. But that's a huge number of patients. But that's why the insurance companies are, are having such a hard time with this. Right. Because there's a lot of patients who should have an LDL of less than 100, less than 70, less than 55 now who can't get there because they can't take more than 20 milligrams of resuvastatin. They are candidates for PCSK9s, but they're not going to get it from their insurance, most insurance companies. No, I was going to say, this seems like a, a good point to actually ask about probably the the most noteworthy, at least recent, PCSK9 inhibitor trial, the Fourier trial. I just wanted to ask, while well, we have Dr. Jellinger's expertise, what he took away from that trial and, and how it's going to change practice. So it, it was one of the most anxiously awaited trials in modern history in medicine because the PCSK9s have, have really uh, 
you know, piqued a lot of people's interest. And, you know, you can get LDL down to 20 and 30 with the PCSK9. It's not, not, not rare at all. Um, and um, it was a two-year trial, which isn't very long. And those patients who were, who were treated just with uh, optimized statin dose uh, got their LDL down to about 70 from 90-something. Um, and those who uh, uh, were treated with, um, uh, with the PCSK9 plus the statins got their uh, LDLs down to a, about 30. Uh, it's quite low. Uh, and um, they were followed for two years. And, of course, everybody with bated breath was waiting to see what happens. Now, two years is not a long time right. for outcomes uh, at all. And so one outcome was somewhat disappointing. The difference between the two groups, there was no difference in, 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 in cardiac deaths between the two groups. Uh, so, so, so some people are saying, well, this wasn't a great trial because the same number of people died in both groups. Well, the, the, you can make a very good case that two years is not enough to show a death benefit. It's too short. And you can also make a case that the the uh, group that was being treated with statins alone had a pretty good LDL. It was seventy for sure. You know, uh, and so how much better can you get by lowering seventy to thirty in two years? While the other statin trials a few years ago, some years ago, that did show a death benefit, those patients LDL started at one hundred and fifty and one hundred and sixty, and they were brought down to say 70, 60, 70, 80, and they showed a death benefit. Well, there's a difference between bringing down a very high LDL to a, a moderately good level, showing a death benefit, than taking an LDL that's already at a good level and bringing it way down in terms of a death benefit. So I just think that needs more time. That's going to that's gonna pan out in more than two years. And at 26 months, a very tight lipid control reduced the risk of a heart attack by 27%, a stroke by 21%, and coronary revascularization by 22%. That was at 26 months. But those curves are separating as we speak. So I think the three and four year data is gonna be very, very impressive. And the uh, cardiovascular death data will pan out with more time because it takes more time to show a death benefit when you bring an LDL down from a already good level of 70 or less than 70 to roughly 30, 35. It's gonna take more time. So it further, it further drove the point home about the lower, the better. And then in this case, going from 70 to 30 made a difference. From a, from a practical standpoint with this trial, I think because Paul and Stuart and I were talking about this before, I think the most exciting thing is what you're talking about here, that the, this extreme LDL lowering, at least in the short term, appears to be safe and appears to lower cardiovascular risk. It lowers events. It just didn't. It didn't reduce death, but it lowers events. But when you look at the the cost, the cost of a PCSK9 inhibitor, because I, I calculated a number needed to treat, just roughing the numbers, it's somewhere around seventy. It's a one point five percent absolute risk reduction for two point two years. A number ne- needed to treat is around seventy or so. And then if you figure out it's a thousand dollars a month or more for twenty six months you're talking over a million dollars to prevent one event. So do you see these medications uh, right now? Should we be using Zetia until we can afford PCSK9 inhibitors for our patients? Or do you think there's going to be some sort of compassionate use for patients that are really high risk but can't afford them? Look, I mean, you're you're quoting the $14,000 a year year figure, but that's the retail uh, cost of the insurance company. The insurance companies pay patients on a regular basis, uh, pay for medications for patients on a regular basis that are far more costly than this agent, these agents are. The, the biologicals for rheumatoid arthritis are much more expensive than the PCSK9 inhibitors, yet there's not the same difficulty in getting these for getting those for patients as there are, uh, there are uh, for getting the PCSK9 for those very valuable patients. I mean, this is just a matter of the insurance companies not wanting to spend the money. I, I, I hate to be bitter about it, but that's what it is. In a, in a, in a, in a situation where it's a, a proven benefit, especially patients at extreme risk who have no other choice. Right. And, and we're talking about more, more life or death situation too. I, I know rheumatoid arthritis. And, 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 you know, cost effectiveness is a very important issue. And on a population, it's, 
These, these agents don't appear to be cost effective, but the data isn't completely in. There are actually studies that show they are cost effective, but there are others that show they don't. But you've got a patient sitting in front of you, and your patient sitting in front of you has already achieved an LDL of less than 70, let's say it's 62, and continues to have unstable angina or has another heart attack. What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. That LDL is less than uh, is less than 70 already, which is the established goal up to now for such a patient, yet they continue to have events. Or you have a diabetic patient who has established clinical cardiovascular disease. Or you have a patient with chronic kidney disease, stage three or four, with established cardiovascular disease. Or you have a heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemic patient with established clinical cardiovascular disease. Or you have a patient sitting in front of you who's already had a coronary event at an early age, less than 55 in a male and less than 65 in a female. This patient sitting in front of you, their LDL is below 70, but they've got all these seriously compromising issues. They're not doing well. And we're not going to be able to get that LDL too much lower in most cases with statins. We have a treatment now that can drive that LDL down to less than 55, maybe less than 40. That's going to make a difference in these patients, and we can't get it to our patients. Now, what I've just read you is the extreme risk category in the new age guidelines, which has an LDL goal less than 55, a non-HDL goal less than 80, and an APOB goal less than 70 in those patients who continue to have ASCVD, including unstable angina, after achieving an LDL less than 70. You know that that patient needs a 40 or 50 LDL. So what would you do now? I would add azetamide, as you just said. Uh, to the highest tolerated dose of statin and hope that you'll get that LDL down into the low 50s. or And you can. Some, very often, if you use atorvastatin and rosuvastatin with azetamide, you can get the LDL down into the low 50s often enough, even the high 40s. But in extreme cases, someone who's had a heart attack in his 40s and his family history has had a heart attack in his 40s and he's having angina, a LDL probably ought to be 30 or 40. And the only way you're going to do that is with a PCSK9. No one else has recommended an LDL goal of less than 55. As you pointed out in the beginning of this, many people are going away from goals completely. And this is exactly the opposite. We're tightening up on the goal with good reason because we have, we have data to support it. And I agree that the cost of these drugs is a real issue, but... The insurance companies are, 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 are familiar with paying for expensive drugs, and they do it readily. They're just not paying for this one. <laughs> it's an 80% rejection. Uh, I wanted to break in and ask what might be a naive question, but patients ask me about this, and I can't say that I actually know the answer. Have any of these, like with, this, with these extreme lowering of LDLs, have, has anyone shown plaque regression, actual, like, I know we're trying to stabilize or we're trying to prevent progression of plaques, but has anyone shown regression of atherosclerosis? Yes. The, uh, the Glagov study, G-L-A-G-O-V, which was the study that came out a few months before the Fourier study um, using, again, the PCSK9 inhibitor, um, and, but this time using intravascular ultrasound to examine plaque, not to, uh, not to track events, but just to look at plaque reg- regression. And in fact, the patients with the lowest LDLs had the greatest plaque regression. It's the Glagov study, G-L-A-G-O-V. And we'll, we'll link to that. We can link to You don't have to look it up now. We'll, we'll link to that in the show notes for our interested audience members who want, uh, you know, who, who want to delve deep into this. That's a plaque regression study. It's not an outcome study, but it does show what you've asked. Paul and Stuart, we've taken a lot of Dr. Gellinger's time. I, I had most of my main questions answered. This has been just great. Uh, do you guys have any further questions, things that, things that we're missing that our audience might benefit from? Paul? No, I think just over the course of the conversation, he's covered most of my questions. So thank you. This was really helpful. Right. Same here. And sir, the last question I always like to ask our guests, uh, what would be maybe three, three main take-home points that you would like our listeners to, to glean from this discussion that we've just had? The first one, I don't know if I can come up with three, but certainly the theme behind what we have done at ACE is to, to confirm with good evidence 
that, that lower, uh, in, re- in referring to LDL, that lower is definitely better. And that's not uh, even a question anymore, just like the, the, the lipid hypothesis isn't a question. Is it a good idea to lower cholesterol to begin with was the question 15, 20 years ago. That was a hypothesis. That's been proven uh, 100%. Now we're getting into the details. Should you lower LDL even when it's at a favorable level, when someone is still at high risk or having events? And the answer is yes, because we now have good evidence that lower is definitely better. So that is, that is I think, the major thing here. And be, and be persistent with your statins and use azetamide uh, because you're not going to get to the PCSK9 inhibitors as frequently as you like. But do not give up on trying to prescribe them because with persistence and filling out these prior authorization forms, which are a real problem, with persistence, you can often get the PCSK9 inhibitor approved. And remember, time, time is plaque. I'd like to say that point. Time is plaque. So if it takes a year or two to get a PCSK9 inhibitor improved and get the LDL down to 30 or 40, that patient's developed more plaque during that one year. It's really a sad situation. So the lower, the better. No question. Thank you, sir. Anything you'd like to plug? Any uh, websites or do you want to plug the upcoming ACE conference in Austin uh, that, you, that you've been referring to a little bit? Uh, that's, that's taking place, what is it, May 3rd to May 7th? I would certainly suggest to read to your viewers that they stay tuned for the highlights that come out of the ACE meeting because there's always exciting discussions and exciting information that comes from these meetings and it'll be reported on a daily basis from on Medscape and MedPage. We'll actually be there doing some some interviews as well so we'll try to bring some highlights from ACE because uh, the endocrine topics are just such high yield for for primary care providers. Well I appreciate your inviting me I enjoy talking about lipids, and I think what we've done at ACE is really a contribution. How widely it's accepted, uh, that's going to take time because it flies in the face of the uh, of the 800-pound gorilla, the ACCAHA. <laughs> but uh, in, 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 in almost all clinicians, heart of hearts, they know that we're right and that we need to get some of these patients to a much lower LDL. Well, I'll let that be. That's a great note to end on. Thank you, sir. Thanks so much for your time. Hey, thank you. Enjoyed it. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. I just want to point something out. I don't think we mentioned any books, did we? No, but uh, just it would mess people up if I uh, didn't say the full thing. I see. You nor can, apps, nor websites. <laughs> you can, <laughs> Good point, Paul. You can also sign up to receive our monthly newsletter summarizing the key tools, tips, and tricks for your practice at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. We are committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your input. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And finally, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto. Here with Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. Good to have you back, Stuart. I know. Thank you. Thank God you're here. And I remain Dr. Paul Williams. Oh, hi, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Classic. Classic.